0: Welcome to the September 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host Sean Nolan here with Matt Bowling. Hey Sean. Hi Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Uh, we are broadcasting today from Matt's house. We're, we're trying. We're trying with each podcast to progressively get in a different place. Uh, you know, I think next month we'll be podcasting from Starbucks, maybe the month after that from Panera. We'll, we'll play around Sean's a little bit. Sean's to convince me to broadcast from the pool, but I keep telling them that we'll have these electrical troubles. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. We could. Although, you know, it's hard to balance uh, electrical equipment on those little floaty blow-up rafts.
1: Yeah. yeah. So,
0: um, although I think I have a duck that would work. It would sort of hold it
1: you know, in your place. Your computer's pretty rugged, but I'm not so sure about a dunk <laughs> in the pool.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. We don't want to do that. Well, uh, welcome. Uh, to this podcast, and uh, before we begin, I want to just uh, make a big shout out, a big thank you uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, so many of you have commented, uh, so many of you have emailed us and have uh, uh, put up uh, comments there uh, on the posts and the blog, and you've just let us know that this uh, podcast has been a ministry to you, and i tell you, that's why we're doing it, is we want to uh, be a ministry to, do, to you. We want to do something like uh, what the White Horse Inn has done for years for guys like us, in that its uh, it's been a blessing, it's called us to Reformation. And um, so what we want to do today is give some time to some of your questions. Over the course of the last several months, I've been compiling your questions as they've uh, popped up on the blog, and today we want to read them to you here and then just take a moment to think through them and answer some of the questions that you've had. Uh, obviously uh, an hour a month we can't answer everybody's questions and so what we're going to do is take an hour this month and try to answer well everybody's questions <laughs> so uh we're going to start out here i have a question i just got this question yesterday uh it's from a fellow named Raymond and uh Raymond says this he says i live in a in a town it looks like Raymond is a um uh uh, looking to be a pastor, um, I'm guessing here he's going to be going to seminary. He says uh, that him being a pastor is about five years off. That would be part through college, probably. Part way through college, he's, he's thinking about it. Uh, he says, "I live in a town, my hometown, uh, and in a general area where there is no church I've been able to find that has an ordinary means ministry. And not only that, but many of the churches." Uh, in the area fail to even mention Jesus in the songs, sermons, or anything else if he is mentioned. And if he is mentioned, it's not as a savior, uh, but more as a life coach. I presume he's got a lot of mainline churches in his
1: in his area. Uh, he well, goes like on. Joel Olstein style where it's, you know, your best life now kind of thing.
0: Could, yeah, <laughs> yeah. could be something like that. Uh, he says, thankfully, when I go to college, I have a Reformed church that I can attend. But when I'm home for holidays and breaks, there's nowhere I can really go. Uh, he says, but I but I have it easy. He says, I have a few Reformed friends in the area that live here year-round. And in your podcast, you said that the best case scenario, that is when there's a good church in the area, uh, that in the best case scenario, there's no need for a home church. So my question is, what should one do? if there is no true uh, or even remotely true church in the area and one can't afford to relocate so this goes back to a podcast we did I see this was our 5th podcast maybe this was back uh, this would back have been like this time last year yeah probably this time last year this was a uh, um Podcast on house churches, home churches, and the whole house church movement. Uh, And he says elsewhere here in his email that uh, he's been listening through the podcast. So he's probably at some of those beginning ones. Uh, Well, it's not, I don't think that's a question we've answered yet. And maybe that would be a good question uh, to go back to because I think that's a question that our podcast probably raises every month. Right. Is what if my church isn't doing. What you guys are saying, it's supposed to be doing, right? Right. Um, I, and I guess my, my first thought would be if there's, um, there'd be no need for this podcast if all the churches were do, were doing it right. Uh, there'd be no need for reformation.
1: Right. If yeah. I mean, all the, the, the churches were, were here reformed. is because we recognize the same kind of landscape that you're seeing in the micro scale in your community, uh, Raymond. We we see it uh, in our communities. We see it across America. That's why we're passionate about what we do, but. It it seems like in response, uh, one of the things that you reflected in your email that Sean didn't say was that you're looking to come back and plant a church in your hometown. And uh, we have to commend that. Uh, Something historically that Reformed churches have tended to do uh, is to not be very outreach-oriented, to not be very zealous about planting churches. And and, uh, the statistics bear out, and it shouldn't surprise us since it's God's means of growing the kingdom, that planting new churches reaches people with the gospel. uh, So that is commendable that in the long term, that's what you want to do. But in the short term, it certainly is a challenging question. And I guess where we would send you, and I think that Sean's replied some on the blog already to this, um, is uh, to look for the best that you can find. Uh, It would be the very worst to not be under the means of grace, even if they're uh, distorted, even if they're not in their best use. Uh, There must be some conservative evangelical church uh, there in town or nearby where you and your friends can go. And as my wife put it, when we first met, she was in a church that didn't uh, preach uh, as much biblical doctrine as I would have liked, that she uh, learned to chew the fruit and spit out the seeds. And I think that uh, that's a frequent occurrence for us uh, when we're in a community uh, where the church does not embrace the distinctives uh, that we have.
0: Yeah, I remember, this is probably before seminary, maybe my first year of seminary. Uh, my wife and I attended the church that she had grown up in. And uh, it, was a, it was a similar situ- situation to what Raymond is describing. Actually, we had other churches we could have gone to. But I remember I consciously made the decision to attend this church, um, probably to keep down my pride. That's mm-hmm. uh, something you'll want to think about, Raymond, and your friends will want to think about, is that it's very easy. I re- I remember being young, and I'm not so old now that I don't remember being young. Um, and it's very easy to have very high ideals, uh, to be very idealistic, to expect uh, ch- churches, uh, expect to be able to find the perfect church. I know I've uh, often said joking jokingly, if you ever find the perfect church, Uh, The key is don't join it because it won't be perfect anymore. Um, I think, I think I would agree with Matt that the first thing you need to do in that situation is carefully go back and re-examine the churches in your area. Now, obviously, if you're, um, if it's not a church anymore, if it's a mainline church or it's a, a cult or if it's, you know, something that has just completely left the faith or it's something uh, where you're just not getting anything like what the Bible describes a church service as. You're not getting any of, uh, of Acts, uh, chapter three, um, or I'm sorry, chapter two, uh, there in the thirties of the verse range. Uh, if you're not getting any of that, well then, yeah, you're, you, you are in a difficult situation. But, uh, you know, Martin Luther was the first guy that didn't want to leave the Catholic Church. And so, you might want to be thinking, is there a church where it's biblical, they believe the Bible, maybe their theology isn't exactly what mine is, Uh, you know, maybe they're dispensational and I'm Reformed. Um, Is there a church that I can go to where the teaching is decent and where maybe I can have an influence? Um, Not be
1: obstreperous.
0: Yeah, not be obstreperous, not be... But uh,
1: show up and participate and... Um, try and be an aid. Certainly the pastor wants to take things in in a biblical direction um, and uh, that you can participate there. Really the rule, and Sean said this, although he hasn't said it yet, he said this in our discussion beforehand as we were thinking about the answers to the questions, if we ought to be able to attend a church, maybe not in the long term, maybe it's not the, the greatest thing in the world, but we ought to be able to attend a church with people we believe are going to heaven. It may not be everything that we'd like. It may not be the church that we would plan. It may not be the best church we've ever gone to. But it is far better to be under the means of grace, even imperfect, uh, as it is in every church, even in the best church. The use of the means of grace by the people and the presentation of them by by the ministers are are not perfect. But it's better to be under the means of grace than nowhere, uh, than being apart from them. One
0: of the characteristics, I think this is almost universally true of seminary students, is you go through this time as a seminary student where, uh, where you come to the realization that your pastor isn't perfect. I don't know if you, you had this, Matt, I, I know I had this. where I'm going through seminary, I've got so much idealism, uh, so much of a desire to see things right, and you see, uh, you look at your own pastor and you see nothing but his faults. Yeah, you know, the reality is what'll happen is then if the Lord wills and if the Lord tarries, you'll get into a church someday and you'll have a seminarian in your church and he'll do the same thing to you just to teach you just cuz God has a sense of humor, I think. He sends uh sends them to do that to us. Um as Matt said, uh yes, you need to be under the means of grace. Uh you need to be with people uh who who love the Lord even if the theology isn't absolutely perfect. Uh, one of my favorite um, quotes from Charles Spurgeon uh, was he was preaching a sermon, he was preaching against Arminianism, against the idea that uh, it's it's entirely up to us to choose God and God has no say in whether or not um, we can choose him. God simply puts the call out there, he puts the gospel out there, and it's completely in our hands um, to choose him. Uh, well, Spurgeon was preaching against that theology, called Arminianism, and he was preaching the doctrines of Calvinism. He was teaching that, uh, no, God, in fact, does call, and unless God has called us, we will not come. And so, in the midst of this sermon, one of the great quotes he makes is he says this. He says, uh, "I there are many in this life who call themselves Arminian. And then he says, I have no doubt they shall be Calvinists. In heaven, and that's that's a great quote for a number of reasons. Um, but the the first reason is, and the reason that applies to what we're talking about here is this: it recognizes that bad theology won't necessarily keep you from heaven. Now, if you've got the gospel wrong, if you've got the the Trinity wrong, I mean, we could go back to talking about the fundamentals. That's that's not the issue. The fact is that there are greater issues and there are lesser issues and you know uh for example a lesser issue might be does does your church have communion once a week uh or does it have it once a month or does it have it once a year you know that's a minor issue uh in the long haul i think um you're better off going to a church even that does it once a year and preaches sound doctrine than uh then if you can't find anything else, not going to church at all. So um, I think we, we need to reexamine our churches. We live in a culture, Matt knows this about me, I'm, I, I'm a real student of uh, culture and sociology. And one thing I think we do too often is we want options. Uh, we want to be able to choose, pick and choose our church the way we pick and choose the coffee we get at Starbucks. And, uh, you know, the fact is, in the olden days, it was it was a one-church town. And you went to whatever church happened to be in your town. And if the church didn't meet all of your expectations, it didn't do everything you wanted to do, well, then you supplemented it as the father in your family. So, um, so I guess that's the first thing I would do is encourage that, um, not being separatistic, but going back and, and honestly reevaluating and saying, is there a church here? that for the time being I don't have to do this forever that I can participate with that's going to give you an experience of people other than yourself it's going to give you a heart for the fact that uh, you know people in the church even in reformed churches the people who sit in the pews don't have all their theology straight and I think we tend to think that that's the case in reformed churches oh all the people have their theology straight and they all get it and that's not true that's that's a myth And so go back and re-examine Raymond. Uh, Look for a place you can have influence. But if you can't, well, what do you think, Matt? If you can't find anything that is, uh, even sound biblically, maybe he lives in, in a one church town and that's, maybe he lives in a two or three church town and, you know, they're all churches that have long since become social clubs.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the last resort, and even our our uh, the PCA's uh, standards recognize this. You know, the last resort is to get together with other like minded believers, and uh, to the best of your ability, with in the absence of uh, an elder or a minister, is to study the Word and to pray and to sing and to plead with the Lord that He might provide you with a ministry um, where uh, there's a gifted person who can who can teach the people, and maybe you're that person, Raymond. Yeah, it's very possible. It's very
0: possible. One thing I would encourage, if that is the case, is make sure that you have a good mix of people, Mm. Um, not just you and your friends. Um, You know, who was it? It was David's son, who instead of listening to his the wise counselors. uh, No, was it Solomon's son? I think it was Solomon's son, who, instead of listening to the wise counselors of his father, uh, listened to his friends and, of course, got himself into a lot of trouble. Um, So, it would always be wise if you can find some mature believers in your area who can participate in this with you. And maybe what it is is that you're going to another church in the area and that just on Sunday evenings you get together for a Bible study and sort of supplement the teaching uh, with some good reform teaching. So that's uh i i think that's i think that about answers the question i hope if trouble. you have any more questions raymond give us an email drop us a drop us a comment if any uh, if anyone else has any questions again uh the the blog is open uh second question we have is from um uh, It might be betty's i'm gonna say betise because it sounds cooler um she says gentlemen I'm assuming this is a she. She says, Gentlemen, I have recently found your podcast via an article on the Internet Monk blog. Uh, By the way, Internet Monk, if you're listening, thank you for recommending us. Uh, She says, I appreciate what you're doing. God is certainly ministering to me through the podcast. Since I'm new to Ordinary Means, I've been catching up on some of the older episodes, uh, most recently that which covers the topic of the sacraments. I singled out this podcast due to communion questions that had arisen in my own life. Would you guys help me with some communion concepts? She says, what does it mean to examine yourself? Uh, What are you looking for? Is it simply salvation that you look to find? Or are you looking to ensure that you're a good standing member of an evangelical church? Even yet, are you looking for something further? The same could be said in defining eating in an unworthy manner. If I'm a repentant Christian that happens to find myself in the middle of a season of temptation... Am I to abstain from communion? Are there concerns uh, with, com- uh, with communing with churches that don't follow a biblical standard of communion? Example, when I return home for the holidays, I typically attend my parents' church, Southern Baptist, uh, that fails to warn nonbelievers to abstain from communion. Uh, she says, I'd appreciate your thoughts on this topic. Who knows, there may be plans for a future podcast concerning communion. Well, right now, that podcast is here. Um, I think we can answer these. It seems to me she's got three questions. Uh, She wants to know, what does it mean to examine herself? She wants to know who can come. uh, Can a repentant Christian who's in the middle of temptation come? And can we commune with, uh, with other churches?
1: So who, let's take the would, first question. Who, yeah, other churches who wouldn't necessarily follow our exact practice of communion. We're exactly. We're not dealing with the, the technical theological question of close or closed communion, which I think we did deal with in that podcast earlier. Earlier. I was uh, yeah, three or four it, ago. Right. Yep. But rather, you, you know, you're, you find yourself in the attendance of another church in which you're not a member.
0: Yeah. So in, the, in that light, uh, Batiste, I would urge you to um, look up our podcast on, I think it's called Fencing the Table. It may well be. Yeah. 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 But how about this first question? What does
1: it mean? to examine ourselves. Yeah, I think examining ourselves, I'm going to use the, just because it's what Sean and I have subscribed to as PCA ministers, and I think because it's a very good exposition of the scriptures, I'm just going to read for you some portions. This is the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question 171. You can get uh, all the catechisms that we reference, you can get at ccel.org, which is the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. It's a ministry of Calvin. College And uh, it's tremendous. You'll find more than you can ever read in a lifetime. But it's an easy clearinghouse for all the confessional standards for sure. But this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is a teaching tool that came out of the especially the um, English and Scottish Reformation in the 1640s. This was produced. And the uh, question asks, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? They that receive the sacrament, this is the answer, they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto. How is that? By examining themselves. In what particular way are they examining themselves? Of their being in Christ. I'm going to mention these and just sort of elaborate a little bit of them. So you got to know whether you're a true Christian or not. Or do you find evidence that you are regenerate by the Holy Spirit and that you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation? They're also to examine themselves of their sins and wants. So being aware of your sin and your temptations, far be it from being, to your second question, a reason not to come to the table, is one of the requirements of coming to the table. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, which I don't have right in front of me right now, but it asks who are to come to the table of the Lord. I was just looking at this earlier today, but I believe the way that it starts is those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins. Yeah. That those who are to come are not the satisfied, not the ones who think that they've made it. It's the ones who know that they haven't who are to come to the table.
0: Just to add to that, I I will often say on on a given Sunday, just remind people this is a table for sinners. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a table for perfect people.
1: Right. Right. So they're examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance. Uh, and so, somebody who's coming uh, to the table, part of their examining themselves is, do I understand the supper? Which is why uh, we're going to take a question a little bit later on uh, children communing that th- there there appears to be, especially in the teaching of First Corinthians 11, that people misunderstood the supper, and that part of part of coming to the Lord's supper is recognizing what it is, and thus the catechetical material to help us understand it in, uh, as an exposition of the scriptures. They're also to examine themselves of their love to God and the brethren. So do we have this basic First John kind of beginnings at least of discipleship that I'm seeking to love God and to love the brothers? Uh, charity to all men, forgiving those who have done them wrong. Sometimes you'll hear in Reformed churches, if you uh, are in a state of uh, willing unforgiveness of somebody else, that it would be better for you to stay away. And that's embodying this teaching from the larger catechism. That if we can't find it in ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, out of thankfulness for God's grace to forgive somebody else who has repented, um, then we're in a state that's that's not right for us to come to the table because we're not repenting of our sin and revealing, as Acts puts it, works that are meet with repentance by our forgiving. Uh, of their desires after Christ, Which of by, their new By o-
0: the way, I think that's Acts, it's either 2320 or 2023.
1: One of One of two. the two. Um, and of their new obedience and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. So the concept here in the Larger Catechism 171 is that the examining you're to do is of a whole bunch of stuff. Um, one of the things that we did for years in my congregation, but we did it for so long that I think people got it, is we would actually give people the week before communion, Westminster Larger Catechism 171, with all the scripture proofs on one sheet of paper in the bulletin beforehand as an aid to them preparing uh, for the Lord's Supper. Now, yes, yeah, secondly, um, you know if I'm in a time especially of temptation, should I come to the lord's Supper? And the next question in the larger Catechism deals with that in part: May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the lord's Supper Here's the answer this is the uh, this is updated language the man edited version. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ. Though he be not yet assured thereof, and in god 's account has it if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it of his assurance, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, so do you truly want Christ? do you truly want him? Do you know that he's your only hope that you want to depart from iniquity that is that you 've got genuine repentance as a lifestyle repentance lifestyle of repentance and faith. In which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief, even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail, to set aside his unbelief, and labor to have his doubts resolved, and so doing he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper, that he may be further strengthened.
0: Yeah, that that last part is important. He ought to come. Uh, Batista's question was, um, what if I happen to find myself in the middle of a season of temptation? You ought well, to come. You ought to come. Well, I would I would go further. What if I happen to find myself in a season of sin? If you're recognizing that sin, as, as Paul did in Romans 7, and you're saying, I'm doing the very thing I hate, that's a reason to come. It is. Because you need that grace. You need that reminder that Jesus died on the cross for those very sins. Now, this is probably a good point to also add what you should not be doing uh, during that preparation time, as the element, however, that works in your church, maybe it's while the elements are being passed out, uh, maybe it's while people are going forward. Um, but as you are examining your heart, and I do hope and pray that your church gives you an opportunity to examine your heart before serving uh, the bread and the wine. But um, as you are doing that, it's important to realize that uh, this is not an individualistic time. I think. Pietism has strongly influenced Pietism, that's the uh, the whole movement that brought us, um, you know, brought us the idea of the quiet time and brought us the idea of uh, personal, it's all about our personal relationship in Jesus Very individualistic. Uh, Very individualistic. Now, because both of those things are good. We should have quiet times, and we should have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it should not be uh, to the detriment of the communing of the whole body of believers. And it's important to remember that as we come, we come to one loaf and one cup. Now, that one loaf and one cup may be broken up into pieces for you in the church, but the emphasis is on the fact that there was one body, Jesus' body that was broken, and it was given for you. And so as that bread gets passed around, you're breaking off a piece of the body of Christ. Now, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 is that we need to be able to examine the body. And uh, some take that as, well, I need to examine myself. Uh, Others would take that as, I need to examine to see that I am uh, in this communion of saints. Do I do I rightly understand the body? Means not do I understand the body of Jesus, but do I understand this body of which I'm a part? That which I'm a part what, of the communion
1: which uh, is, of this local fellowship. Which is, by the way, why in that um, large catechism question it brings up this issue of forgiveness, because that would be an indication that I'm not. In solidarity with the members of this body, I'm choosing to separate myself from some and to take the symbol of unity with Christ and the communion of saints in my hand, there would be a a discord between the two of those. So if there's a discord to our communing with anybody else in our fellowship or in
0: who is a believer in Christ, yes, that may be a point to leave our gift at the altar
1: And and and
0: go get reconciled and then come back. Um, so, uh, it's an important, it's an important point because we want to make sure that we're not just having, you know, sort of a little, there's a tendency in evangelical churches that when the elements are being passed, then I go into sort of this little bubble in my pew where I'm ignoring everyone around me and just sort of praying. Yeah, you should be praying during that time, but you should be thinking about, uh, the union and the communion that is going on here. And that's a big part of what is happening at the Lord's Supper. And obviously, we probably need to have a whole podcast devor- devoted just to that issue of what is the Lord's Supper and what does this mean to have communion with the whole body versus sort of an individual relationship with Jesus. Now, her third question...
1: Yeah, can I say one more thing? On the yeah, process? absolutely. We had an elder in our church in San Diego and it just I was just reminded of this, but... Um, and, and this wasn't a universal practice of that, of that church or even of those elders or even of many churches that I've been in, but I really appreciated it. When he would bring the tray uh, of, of either the, the bread or the fruit of the vine to a new row of people, in handing it to the first person, he would say something like, the body of Christ given for you. And it just struck me that while we're just talking on this community of the saints and trying to make communion something that's not just my personal quiet time with the Lord as I'm in a pew with other people and I'm missing the community of the saints at the same time, that that might be a practice that might be helpful, that as I hand the tray to my neighbor, I say the body of Christ for you the blood of Christ for you.
0: We used to do that in our uh, church in Fallbrook, California. Okay. And what we would do is as uh both the, the usher would say it as they uh they gave the the plate or the with with the cups or the plate with the bread uh to the row, but then as it went down the row we taught our people that as you hand it to the next person, you say, "The body of Christ given See, for I mean, you." that's great. The body it, of Christ, because it yeah, it reestablishes the fact this is a community.
1: Right. This
0: isn't this isn't a lone ranger event we're about to partake of. Absolutely. That's the whole reason that most churches say, "And we will partake, wait and partake together." If this was an individualistic thing, then you, when you immediately when you get the bread, hey, you could toss it in your mouth. But notice that you wait. You wait until everybody's got it. And then you partake together. And it's something we've gotten used to, but we need to sort of wake up and say, oh, we're doing that for a reason. It's because this is is a body of believers united in Christ. Right, right. Uh, Well, her uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, her third question was that of who can we commune with? Uh, Can we commune? Can you commune with a Southern Baptist Church that doesn't exactly uh, do it all the ways uh, that your church does it? I know in the PCA, uh, we say to our people when we fence the table, you don't have to be a member of this church. All we ask is that you're a member in good standing of some evangelical church. So as uh, Batisse you mentioned, uh, you attend a, a Southern Baptist when you're home with family. You know, if a Southern Baptist attended our church and they were in good standing, uh, they would be, um, and they were certainly to examine themselves and found themselves to be in Christ, by all means they could partake so I would I would tend to say in your case yes uh, there might be some different cases um, certainly there's a question whether or not we can uh, commune when we go into a Catholic church uh, some would have difficulty communing going into an Anglican church or a Lutheran church um, certainly as you get into some of the uh, some of the cults mm-hmm. a, Mor- a Mormon church you know I mean, that ob- obviously would be a problem um, so there's, there's some gray area here, but I would tend to say if it is a Bible believing church, even if they don't have everything in line, um, we're sounding a little bit ecumenical today here, aren't we? Um, I, I would say yes, by all means partake. If this is a body of, of Christians, uh, sincere believers who really do want to understand the Word of God and follow it, I, I've been following a, a thread on, um, the Reformation 21 blog the last week. Uh, they've been talking about some of the differences in um, evangelical churches. Some of the things we can appreciate about different evangelical churches. And I know I went to a dispensational Bible college. Uh, and, and I'm not, I came out not a dispensationalist. In fact, I, I tell people that I became reformed while at my dispensational Bible college. And I tell them the time I became reformed was sitting in an eschatology class. Uh, learning about last things, and the professor put up on the board, uh, put up how Jesus is going to come back seven times. He uh, you know he comes seven back times, seven, seven, just seven just, times, just seven times. He's coming back, he's come back to get the believers, but he's only coming halfway that time. Then he'll come back another time to get the Jews, and he'll come back another time to get the Christians. And I, I jokingly I say, when from that point on, I was reformed, because it just it didn't to me match up with what I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew at the time. Uh, but that said, uh, I really appreciate the dispensationalists' attitude toward the scriptures. Absolutely, They are strong believers in the inerrancy of scripture, and if God says it, we need to do it, in, in reading uh, the Bible and taking it seriously, because this is the word of God. So there are things, even if a church or a, a theological system doesn't agree with you in every way— there are oftentimes very good things that you can appreciate. And if the gospel is there, albeit it may be preached a little fuzzy, um, you know they may have altar calls or things that you're not comfortable with, um, yet if the gospel is there, you may uh, yet be able to commune with them. Um, when it comes down to it, though, we probably should say something about this. There is a matter of conscience. Right. And Paul tells us that anything not done in faith is sin. And so, if you can't legitimately commune, um, I, I would encourage you not to. Right. But I would encourage you at the same time to seek to be able to, particularly in a in a Southern Baptist church. I I, I know there's a wide variety of Southern Baptist churches, um, but I don't see. I, I would imagine I'd be able to commune with most most of those.
1: The one thing that Sean said that's important, and maybe I'll just highlight it because it's a it's a kind of a little bit of a um, hobby horse for me, is if the gospel is there, Sean said, which is important, because there are a lot of churches today that preach uh, what I'll charitably call a half a gospel, which is believe in Jesus. I would submit to you, if you go through the gospels and the book of Acts, and you look at the preaching of the gospel that is there, that there is a word that begins with R- and ends with ent and has a P in it that you don't hear very much in churches anymore. It's the word repent. And that's the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached. It was a gospel of repent and believe. Turn from a life of sin, turn to reliance upon Christ only. Uh, and so there are quite a few churches that are preaching a, a very truncated gospel uh, that you've got to be careful with. Um, and, and that from a lot of different backgrounds.
0: Uh, third question we have here is uh, from a fellow named Dave. And this is actually a question that if you go back, I'm sorry, I don't have it right here. I'll, I'll put it up on the, um, on the blog when we post. Uh, but if you go back, there's actually a written answer uh, to this in the comments section, uh, but Dave asks the question. Uh, There's a couple of questions. One from a fellow named Dave, and one from a fellow named Mike about Pato communion. I know we dealt with that earlier this year. And um, this is, a, if you're not familiar with the term, this is a
1: very young children um, taking the Lord's Supper.
0: Yes, and uh, we would we would generally reject. The idea of paedocommunion—that is, assuming that just because a child is a child of believers, that they are permitted to take of the Lord's supper—and um, the reason for that would be uh, because the Bible places um, restrictions upon the communion of certain people. For example, uh, Paul says that to commune, you have to be
1: able to examine yourself. And we would argue that... What we just talked about in terms of examination, what the examination looks like. Exactly. And And a very young child is not able to do what we've already talked about. Precisely.
0: But what Dave asks is, uh, he asks a little bit more practical question, and he asks, what do you do? So maybe this is going to apply uh, more to some uh, some of the pastors who are listening. What do you do when somebody shows up at your church? Like, uh, he uses the example of... um, a denomination that believes in the pedo communion, the, the uh, CRE, Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals. Uh, this is the uh, this is the denomination that, by and large, has uh, uh, is is promoting the federal vision that we've been talking about the last the past couple uh, podcasts. But what do you do if somebody or family from a church like that shows up uh, in your church and? Um, and you don't know anything about them, uh, and they're all partaking. Uh, you know, what do you do about that? Well, my, my response to Dave at the time, um, and you can find this on the blog, was I gave him three examples of situations, um, very practical situations that might happen. Um Well, before I get to those, let me say this. In the PCA, we have a distinction. We we make a distinction between communing and non-communing members. Uh, Both are considered members, um, but one is made up of uh, those who have professed their faith, those who have made a, uh, a profession before the congregation who said, I believe in Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner, I believe I'm saved only by grace. Um... And these are, uh, these are those who've come, who've not only believed in their heart, but professed with their mouth. They are what we would call communing members in the church. That is, they participate in communion. Now, their children, and I think universally in the evangelical church, um, I'm sure there's an exception somewhere, but I'm not sure where it is, uh, every church considers the children of believers, they treat them as members. We, treat, we teach our children to pray. We teach our children to read the Bible. So we treat our children to a point as if they were Christians. We don't automatically assume they're Christians, but we, um, but we know that we believe in God, and God has taught us to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, uh, Ephesians. And so we do that with our kids uh not presuming anything we're not presuming our child is a believer or unbeliever we're just simply being obedient to god uh, in doing that now that being the case uh what do you do when somebody comes in and they're visiting okay well let's uh give you give you three examples first one uh would be pretty clear uh, an elder serving communion uh sees uh, a visiting adult Taking a piece of the bread and shoving it down their baby's throat. Okay? That's not, obviously, that's an extreme example. And even in, uh, I think, the CRE, you're not going to see that as much. I think they wait even until their children are at least able to eat, have been weaned. Weaned, yeah. uh, Before they do. But what if, you know, what if you saw that? Well, I think what we would do is pull that family aside afterwards and talk to them a little bit about how our church differs on that and, and explain that to them. Now, a lot of this is going to depend on uh, some very practical things in your church. How big is your church? You know, Are your elders aware of all the stuff that's going on as those elements are being passed down the
1: aisles? And they should be, if I could just add a note. Yeah. Something that our elders do, we may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, but part of your responsibility as elders and pastors is uh, is to see who's taking the Lord's Supper. Because many times, um, your insights into who needs shepherding is going to come down to who takes and who doesn't take if they actually listen to how the invitation to the table comes. And if somebody who we think ought to come to the table doesn't, Spiritual inquiry needs to be made in their life. Somebody comes to the table who we don't think that they should. That's a cue to us. Perhaps the Lord is at work, and this person's ready to make a profession of faith, and, and we want to be the ones who come to them and say, hey, is the Lord at work here? And maybe we'll also, in the opportunity to that, find out, no, the Lord's not at work, and they misunderstood, and they just needed a little bit of instruction. But um, we should be vigilant um, with the use of the means, because it frequently will give us um, cues as to who needs shepherding to be shepherded
0: absolutely and I think you make a good point in that uh, we view it as an opportunity Yes. you know not as a, a, as a not, not, not an opportunity to exhort but an opportunity to encourage them yes. in the proper direction I mean, it's to be done with gentleness it's to be done with uh, humility um, you know it's not simply hey well, what are you doing stop that it's, it's you know l- let's talk about what happened here this morning and, uh, and trust that the Lord will use even that so obviously the first example I think would be one that would be fairly clear a second one might be um, what if you have a visitor and the visitor actually comes to you before the service um, and says you know I have a child I come from a church where we practice pedo communion and I would like my two-year-old to partake well I think in that circumstance we would we would encourage them not to do it Right, just because that doesn't fit in, if uh, we would ask them, has your child ever made a profession of faith? You know, has your child demonstrated outwardly before the congregation that they uh, have taken hold of the promises given to them in their baptism? And if they have not, then it's probably wise that they don't, and we would just encourage them um, uh, to refrain uh, at that at that point. Uh, Third example. And this is probably the, the trickiest, is what if a family shows up and let's say they have an eight-year-old? Uh, and this is a tough one because an eight-year-old, I would say, is at a place where they might be ready to partake. Uh, but it's going to depend. It's going to depend uh on if they really are ready. Is, is God really working um, in their heart? Now, I would say with a visitor, we probably wouldn't pursue that if we saw an eight-year-old taking... Um, unless they continued as a regular attender, and we want to make sure that that child is is in good standing, um, we would want to make sure that that child is um, uh, has in fact made made a profession.
1: Maybe you're from a background that's not uh, that's not PCA, and maybe we could do a little bit uh, just of explanation as to why uh, we make that requirement of coming to the Lord's table that you're a member in good standing of some evangelical church, um, irrelevant of the age. Um, Why do people need to be members in good standing? Well, in the PCA, the way that we think about it, membership is, uh, while it's a secondary or a tertiary issue, people can get into heaven if they don't believe in formal membership. Uh, We believe that it is uh, from the Word of God, that there was very obviously uh, defined groups in the churches, those who had rights, uh, for example, to vote very clearly in the book of Acts, those who could be removed, which meant that there was a group that we're in. And so the church having a boundary, uh, which is known, those who have rights to the table and to voting and things like that. Um, and so we don't think that membership is a side issue. Why? Well, if you go through, when you look at the doctrine of eldership, especially in the New Testament, what we find is that the elders have a responsibility for the flock. And they need to know who that flock is And who they have responsibility for. And people, as a part of their Christian discipleship, need to submit to the eldership of some local body. That's God's way of doing things. That's God's way of church. And so if somebody is unwilling to submit to some body of elders in some Bible-believing church, there's a piece of their discipleship that's actually missing. And so we want to encourage people um, to joyfully submit themselves to the authority structure that god 's put in place, which is the eldership
0: you know Matt, that goes back to the point you made just a few minutes ago about using uh, about the elders being aware of who's yeah. partaking and who's not. Um, I know in our church, our elders are the ones who serve so that there is some awareness of that, and they try to pay attention um, but that that brings up a uh, a, a very interesting point in, oh um, uh, what is it, I'm trying to think of the, the document that I got this from, uh, but John Calvin in Geneva would, if someone in the church did not partake uh, of the Lord's table uh, two, two consecutive times, you were guaranteed a visit from the elders. Hmm. So if you were not partaking at, the, partaking at the table, that was the clue to them. Something's going on. There's some sin. They need more help than they're getting. Right. They need some shepherding. And so we're going to go and we're going to see them and, and, and help them through this. Right. This also takes us to our uh, our next question, which is from Mike. And Mike asks, asks the question, you know, what is a valid profession of faith? Hmm. He says, I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old Um I'm a member of a PCA, and my three-and-a-half-year-old participates in corporate worship with me every week. Uh, She prays to Jesus to forgive her of her sins when she sins. She asks for family worship at home. She sings praises to God. She professes her belief in the blood of Christ. And when I ask her if her good works get to heaven, she says, No, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm presuming that's how your daughter talks, because that's how most of my daughters talk when they respond uh, to that. So he asked the question, is there an age of accountability? How do do we deal uh, with this whole idea of the profession of faith? And what about with an adult? How do we know that's valid?
1: Right. Um, it's It's a great question. It is a good question, and I think that what we there's sort of two ways you can sort of fall off this, this horse. Um, you, you can fall off on the one side and say, well, we'll take everybody at face value, and um, boy, if they can say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, then you're into the table. Um, but you can also sort of fall off the other way, which is some of the ways that the – The Puritans fell into in that you had to have this detailed narrative of conversion where you, in explicit detail, could tell what the state of your heart was before conversion and that that the falling under the law and a deep conviction of the law for a period of time and then laying hold of the promises of the gospel. And I think what we want to do is we don't want to fall to either one of those extremes. We don't want to make it cookie cutter as to how uh, we insist that people must express their faith. But what must they express? Well, they must express that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they've adopted a lifestyle of repentance and faith, and that's what we're we're inquiring. I think I've told the story before in a podcast, but uh, we have heard uh, as we've examined people uh, by our elders, people say this is the hardest membership interview I've ever done, and that has always struck me as very curious. Matt, your church, your elders are so mean. Well, it's very curious to me because it. We don't ask a lot um, of doctrinal questions, um, but we do ask heart-searching questions. We ask people, what evidence do you have in your life? And this is pure Dave Eby. This was learned from Dave Eby, who mentored me in seminary and, and taught me this particular point well. Um, was Dave Eby was
0: uh, a and I's pastor in California for a time while we were in seminary, and he's now a missionary in
1: uh, Uganda. Uganda, yeah. Um, but learned a lot from Dave, and one of those things was, you know, what evidence do you have in your in in your life that you're actually converted? And what another question we ask is, what what sins? Presently, is God convicting you of and seeking to transform you in? And what that does is it, it's an attempt to diagnose, it's a diagnostic to try and see, uh, is this person actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Now, that's not perfect. We can't do that perfectly. Uh, we can't fall into what, what I would generously call, uh, much as I have lovely, wonderful, Reformed Baptist friends, sort of the Baptistic era of, of uh, maintaining that we only have a regenerate church membership. We're not perfect at this. We can't. But we can ask the right question. We we
0: can't separate the sheep and the goats. Right. Not perfectly. And there will always be sheep and goats Mm -hmm. until Jesus comes back.
1: And we're not the ones to tear them out, but Jesus will settle the score at the end of the day. So what constitutes as a profession? I think that what we want to see uh, when I'm an elder sitting in a membership interview with whether it's a child or a teenager or an adult, what I want to see is that the person has uh, began a lifestyle of repentance and faith that they're aware of their sinfulness, that they're aware of their uh, utter need for Christ, that they're depending upon Christ and nothing else, and no one else, not themselves, and that they have a genuine daily practice uh, of repentance. With a small child, I think that this is one of the things I would especially look for. Does the child have conviction of sin that flows from within them? not simply from correction. So does your child come, as you do, unprompted to confess their sins? Hopefully, you as a believer come unprompted only by the Holy Spirit to confess your sins. Does your child come and say, Daddy, I sinned. No one saw me but God, but I know that I did it. And is it not just to get out of punishment, but is it in genuine repentance that I know I've done the wrong thing and the Holy Spirit has convicted me of it.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I mean, I, as I look at my own children, I have four daughters. And uh, with each of my daughters, we look for that. We look for that, uh, you know, undirected uh, time when the child seems to be responding to the inter- inner promptings of the spirit, right? Now, obviously, that's subjective. Oh yeah. But you know, it's going to be subjective. That's why we only we look for a valid profession of faith. Uh, we don't look for an indiscriminate profession of faith. We don't look for just anybody who can say um, say I believe in Jesus automatically right. gets to come. Although if you look in the New Testament, it seems that the indicator was, if you can say Jesus is Lord, that that was a strong indicator that you, uh, in that cultural setting where the church is being persecuted, if you would actually say Jesus is Lord, that was a strong indicator that your profession uh, was valid. Now, the fact that um, Jesus says in the parable of the sower, There are, in fact, those who immediately spring up with great joy, but who have no root in Christ. So some of those valid professions are going to, at some point, show themselves to be invalid. Seemingly valid profession. Yes. So they would be a seemingly valid profession. But I think the wrong wrong tack to take on that is then to doubt everybody's profession. Right. Now... Thinking about this man's uh, daughter, thinking about Mike's daughter, um, she's young. Yeah, she's not missing out on any any grace at this point by not partaking of the supper. She clearly, as a three and a half, a three and a half year old, is is parroting back exactly what her parents are teaching her. And this is why Jesus says you need to have the faith like a child. Right. He doesn't say you have to have the faith of a child, but faith like a child. That same way that child puts her faith uh, or puts his faith in their parents and believes indiscriminately whatever their parents say. And if their parents tell them, you know, who made you? God. They'll say it. You can get them to say that from a young, young age. And that's great to get them to say that, but as time goes on, they're going to begin uh, to interact with those uh, statements, and they're going to have to be begin to take them as their own. And those children are going to have to develop an understanding of their own, where it's not just parroting back, but it but it is something that is personal and real to them. Um, now, I don't I don't think you've got to wait till. Uh, a child is 16, 17, or 18 to admit them to the table. Uh, we have uh, children in our church who've been admitted um, at, uh, you know, under 10
1: Right. Yeah, to, ours is, to the table. We probably have the youngest we've had admitted probably uh, 11, 12, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Which and, I don't think is unreasonable.
0: No, And but what we do is there's a whole process. Right. We have a communicants class that they go through, uh, the parents have to come and testify to the child's belief and to a demonstration of that inward working of the spirit seen in the child. Uh, the parents have to be training the child at home. Right. Um, the child has to come, and the child has to... Uh, this is this is where we get the comment, you have a very hard membership exam, is we give our children the same exam we give the parents. Right. Now, we give it at an age-appropriate level, but they have to be able to demonstrate... Uh, at that age level, whether they're you know, 9, 10, 11, uh, or beyond, that they really are at a point where they understand these things and that they really do have a personal faith to, to profess and not just
1: that they're clinging to the faith of their parents. Two, two things just to add to that. One is that um, the idea is not the age of the child. The idea is the work of God in the child. Yes, And and God can work from John the Baptist in the womb, as Sean mentioned earlier, uh, to, uh, I was 18, I have a man in my church who wasn't converted until he was 49. And that's what we're looking for, is the work of God in the child, because that's the prerequisite to come to the table. If, um, if you so go, want me just
0: interject. If you, if you go to the confession, the Westminster Confession, there's a chapter on justification. And it talks about the fact that justification is from before time. But then it makes the statement that, Justification happens in space and time. And so the fact is, even though God may have called uh, the child of a believer from before the foundations of the earth, in God's plan, which is all wise, and in his providence, he might not call, the, actually justify the child of a believer until, like you said, Matt, the age of 40. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and so I think that what we want to do is, is be careful not to set uh, under-limits or over-limits or, or even expectations. Yeah. I think that many times um, children get to a certain age in our churches, and it's the age when you take the communicants class, and kids feel pressured to come and make profession that may not be genuine. And well, they know all the answers because they've grown up in church, and they've taken catechism classes, and, and maybe there's been a, a modicum, at least of family worship at home, and, and they can pair it back all the answers, which is why it's so crucial that we ask the heart questions, that we don't let uh, anybody come f- to make a profession just based on parrot answers, on pat answers, but that we're we're honestly inquiring as to the state of their heart. They've got to be able to examine themselves, right? And if they can't reflect to the elders that they are that they have the capability to examine themselves then they don't have the capability to come to the Lord's Supper. We have time for another question there, Sean? I think we
0: have uh, time for a couple brief ones. Um, We have, uh, I guess my one comment that I've seen in a number of places, uh, as people have uh, commented on our last couple podcasts, is... um, you know, here here's the ordinary means podcast addressing the federal vision, and people listen to it and they they'll say to me, "But I'm still confused as to what the federal vision believes." Uh, and and to that, I know Matt and I, you, Matt, you and I talked about this a little bit before. I I think, uh, I think our answer would be, you know what? Even after doing two podcasts on the federal
1: vision, we're still confused as to and what more reading. Yep. And listening than either one of us would ever willingly do on a topic other than something edifying.
0: <laughs> oh, we've been lo- we have been looking at this for for two years now. We've been examining this issue, and we've seen it growing. Um, there's a new document that's out. The the Federal Vision has just published their first official statement of what they believe. So it's uh, technically it is officially a movement now, and the names on this document are. Are the key players uh lightheart jordan wilson uh wilkins uh lusk horn uh even jeff myers in the pca these these are the names on this document and the thing um i i don't want to encourage you to go look at it because i don't think it's going to make anything any more clear um, I've, I just read the document this week, and it's just as confusing as everything you've ever read about the Federal Vision, but there's two things that come out of that document that weren't clear in earlier writings, and that's this. All of the Federal Vision guys are what we call post-millennial and theonomic. And so what that means, um, just very, very briefly, po- post-millennial is the view that they believe that the Church— will be so successful on earth that it will usher in a new Christendom. In fact that's the language that this document uses. They believe there will be a time when essentially um the law of God in Scripture has so been applied to the nations that the church will reign on earth. Uh, in my opinion, it's it's a position that's been held by um by a lot of sound uh, reformed guys in history, but I think it's wrong. And I think it misses the fact that there will always be wheat and tares, sheep and goats. I think it's too optimistic. Um, plus it denies the second law of thermodynamics. I don't know if that applies in theology, but you know, the idea that everything does go from, uh, accord into discord. Um, and then the second thing, theonomy, which plays in very closely to that, is this is a group that's very much basing their thoughts on a reapplication of the law, not only to the Christian, but to the non-Christian. Now, to a certain point, that's, that's good. We would believe in things like corporal, 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 is that the word? Punishment? Corporal punishment. Um, we would believe, we would hold to the, to the benefit of that, even in a secular government. But, uh, the, this kind of theonomic thinking tends to push that even further, you know, to the point of do we, do we punish homosexuals for being homosexual? Do we, you know, how far do we take the law of God when applied in a secular setting? And I think it's important to note that in the scripture, um, Paul, as a Roman citizen, um, never says, I'm trying to influence Rome. Uh, he always says i'm i'm influencing the church i'm teaching the Church to live as citizens of heaven, even while They are citizens of Rome. I mean, we could go into the whole thing of should Christians be involved in politics? Short answer is yes. But I think apart from this new document that the Federal Vision has put out, apart from being just as confusing as everything else they've written, uh, the thing you see is these two areas of postmillennialism and theonomy that come out so strongly, uh, as well as paedo-communion, that Mm -hmm. come out so strongly as to demonstrate that this is a group with whom the reform just simply do not agree.
1: Recognize, too, that as we're, as we're critiquing this, I probably have a, a bit more sympathy for postmillennialism than Sean does. Um, and there are, are even fine people. Keith Matheson has a great book on postmillennialism. Um, Marcel's Kick has a, a classic book on it that's put out by PNR. Um,
0: but these, this, are, these are not guys who hold to a postmillennialism that leads to, to
1: right. Christendom it's on the, Earth. It's the union of those two together that, w- that becomes the issue. Uh, it's when uh, an 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 over continuity with the old covenant, how I would interpret theonomy, is combined with a hopefulness about the spread of the gospel uh, over the face of the earth. Uh, there are good. I feel like there are decent arguments for postmillennialism and for amillennialism. I'm sort of a panmillennialist. It's, it's all, all, just, all it's all going to pan out. Yes, but um, so. I think that where we're trying to go is just to realize that theology is never done in a vacuum. It is uh, frequently reactionary in that that nobody's doing it in response to nothing. We're always doing theology in response to something. As much as we try and get back to the Bible as the source, we're almost always reacting to something. And it's never done in our own vacuum. We don't go and approach the church in a vacuum. And I think that's what Sean's trying to highlight about this new document from the Federal Vision is they're coming from this postmillennial theonomic background. And this kind of thinking makes sense if you're coming from that background.
0: Uh, but again, if you're if you're confused right now about the federal vision, this is not a document that I would encourage you to read. Uh, it will just it will just confuse you more.
1: Um, we do recommend the PCA study report, which is widely available. Uh, yes. Which we think is a helpful way of understanding the issues and also answering them from the viewpoint of the Westminster Standards. Yes. Uh, well, Matt, do we?
0: Um, we had one other question, but I think we're going to save that. That's uh, so I'll give you a hint. I'm going to give you a hint of what we're going to talk about uh, next month. And that is we're going to talk about this whole issue of uh, sanctification. And how does sanctification uh, work with the ordinary means? How do the ordinary means interact with our growth as a Christian? And uh, we'll, we'll, I'll give you just a hint of that is we're going to tell you it's by grace. It's not by works, it's by grace. And um, so that's a hint of next month. So we'll hope you'll come back and we hope you'll join us. And again, with thank you to all of our listeners uh, for your support and for your questions. And may the Lord bless you as you continue to pursue Him through His ordinary means.